Welcome to the Truth Matters Podcast. I'm your host, Daryl Harrison. The Truth Matters Podcast is a production of Grace to You, the Bible teaching ministry of John MacArthur. And my guest today, again, we welcome back Phil Johnson, Executive Director at Grace to You. Phil, welcome back to the Truth Matters Podcast. Thank you. Good to be back with you. How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Yeah. Good. Good. Well, Phil, you're here with us today to talk about John MacArthur's book, Worship, the Ultimate Priority. Um, from my understanding, this book was initially published in 1983. That's right. Is that this, this, I've been John MacArthur's editor since 1981, almost mm-hmm. 40 years now. Mm-hmm. And that is the first book that I edited exclusively. Uh, I was going to ask you with the 1983 publication date, this one takes you back a little bit then, yeah, right? Yeah. In fact, I did all the work on that while I was employed at Moody Press. Mm-hmm. They were the publisher, mm-hmm. and um, they had done a few John MacArthur books, and um, uh, and I loved John's teaching. Mm-hmm. I I loved his book on the Charismatics, mm-hmm. which which was not a Moody Press book, mm-hmm. but the Moody Press books it seemed to me were were not particularly well edited, and they didn't show John in the best light. Mm-hmm. They they had I think purposely the editors had attempted to uh, maybe tone his teaching down and make it a little less. Uh, biblically rich than it was they they left all the jokes in and took a lot of the biblical teaching out and i knew john well enough to know from his teaching that uh if you want to edit john macarthur that's that wrong that's the opposite way Mm -hmm. to go you know you you um you need to you need to emphasize the the rich biblical content and uh and not try to spice it up with lightweight stories and stuff like that and and moody press had hired me to be their acquisitions editor and i i sensed immediately that their relationship with john was maybe maybe a little bit on on thin ice because he wasn't certain about the way they'd treated his books and because i asked him what's your next book going to be and he was evasive like i'm not sure i want to give it to moody press and so um, I was concerned about losing him as a Booty Press author. I mean, they were planning to do his commentary series, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he was the best potential author that uh, that they had on their list as far as I was concerned. So I was determined to make sure that whatever John's next book was would be a Moody Press book. And I heard him preach this series on worship. He called it True Worship from... Um, John chapter 4, starting in John chapter 4. And so I surreptitiously took the uh, tapes of those messages, had them transcribed, and did a sample chapter, edited it myself, and gave it to him. And I didn't tell him I had edited mm-hmm. it. I just said, we had a we had a different editor do this, who I think knows your material a little bit better than the previous editors. And um, tell me what you think about it. If you like it, we'll get this editor. This can be a Moody Press book. And uh, he read it and uh, it, it immediately said, this is really good. Did you do it? Like, he figured out that I had edited it. And maybe I wasn't as subtle as I thought. I don't know how he, he knew that, but he knew it. And uh, he said, if if you'll edit this book, I'll make it a Moody Press book. So that became the first John MacArthur book that I actually controlled the editorial process with. And I was able to work with John long distance. I was in Chicago. He was in California. And so we did a lot of talking those days on the phone and uh, uh, finished that book. And I'm, I'm pleased to say that has been continuously in print since 1983. Yeah. So I noticed that the initial printing was 1983. Then it was reprinted in 2012. 
Right. Uh, yeah, kind of an anniversary edition. They added a added a an appendix, I think, maybe one chapter to it. It wasn't changed dramatically. It was beefed up a bit with uh, he had done a as I recall, he had done a uh, a paper, like almost an academic paper mm-hmm. on music, church music. Mm-hmm. And the one the one issue that he really hadn't dealt with in the original book was music. And when people today think of worship, the music is what they think of. Uh, I think one of the geniuses of John's approach is he's saying, no, worship is not just about singing. Worship includes preaching. In fact, it includes all of life. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and yet, there's so many questions about music and worship and all that. I thought it was good to include that chapter in the in the new edition. So that's in there, and maybe one or two other things. But uh, that remains one of my favorite John MacArthur books. Uh, it's it's very simple. It's an easy book to read, uh, and it's a page turner. You 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 would think worship might be a dry topic yeah. to cover, but yeah. you know. You know John MacArthur. Yeah. Uh, once he opens the scripture, yeah. there's nothing dry nothing about dry it. Nothing dry about it. Let me ask you this. So you mentioned that John preached a series titled True Worship, and that sort of, um, I guess, gave rise, or, or I won't say it was the impetus for this book, but so it was the, out, the book was the outgrowth of that teaching series. Um, what can you, what, you know, if you were to nail it down to its most fundamental, what would you say this book is all about? What is worship? the ultimate priority all about in a nutshell. Yes. That title, the ultimate priority. In fact, that was the original title of the book. Mm -hmm. It wasn't worship. The ultimate priority It was just the ultimate priority. And uh, his argument is that how you worship and who you worship is the most important thing about you. Mm -hmm. It's the most important thing in your life. It ought to be the ultimate priority Mm -hmm. over what your job is, Mm -hmm. over what your uh, you, you know, where you live, all those sorts of questions that we grapple with. And John is saying, still, w- worshiping God should be the top priority for a believer. And for most of us, let's face it, in practical terms, it's not. Mm-hmm. So it's a convicting book to read mm-hmm. because it will, even 40 years later, it rebukes me when I mm-hmm. read it mm-hmm. and and realize that it's so easy for the priorities in our lives to get out of out of skew, you know, and and um, we we need to constantly come back and remind ourselves uh, of the priority of worship. You know, one of the things I appreciated about the book is something that you just men- mentioned. It is uh, a very convicting book. Uh, you would think that the subject of wor- worship would be somewhat um, vanilla, somewhat innocuous, and wouldn't necessarily really uh, reach you on the inside to where it's convicting you about some things, but there's some very hard truths that John gives us uh, in this book. Yeah, that's right. That's right. As I said, it starts with John 4. You know, mm-hmm. that's Jesus' encounter with the woman at the mm-hmm. well, and and she asks him a question about worship. Uh, w- you know, our fathers worship in this mountain, and you say Jerusalem is the place. And Jesus says, the time is coming when it's not here and there, but but the Lord is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. And so the rest of the book is an exploration of what does that mean to worship God in spirit and in truth? And uh, he goes through a series on the attributes of God, Mm -hmm. uh, really powerful stuff uh, where you think about who God is and what he is like. Uh, And, and by the way, the material in the book on the attributes of God actually came from a different series mm-hmm. than the series on worship. Mm-hmm. But um, 
it it blends perfectly with the subject because that's what it's all about. Why do you? Um, I want to assume that you agree with me on this, but basically, when I look at the evangelical landscape, especially in America, um, I don't see too many churches or pulpits that are concerned about how to worship God or worshiping yeah. God at all because we've uh, uh, we've become so comfortable in our Christianity in America where. Rever- reverencing God, worshiping God is, uh, if it's on the radar at all, it's the tiniest of blips. Uh, yeah. You know, nobody talks about that anymore. Why do you think that is? I do agree with you, by the way. Mm-hmm. And and you use the word reverence, mm-hmm. you know, that sounds old fashioned, it does. doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, people don't talk about that mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, we, we go to church in uh, jean shorts, cutoffs and, mm-hmm. you know, Hawaiian shirts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, uh, and it's not about how how you dress but it is about how you approach worship how serious is this is this is is our worship of god as important as say a meeting with the president of the country or or even a wedding do you do you approach your worship with the same sense of of decorum and gravity and and formality as you would go to a wedding or a funeral uh, and everything we do in evangelical worship today uh, tends to point the other direction. It's it's supposed to be casual and comfortable mm-hmm. and and easy and uh, and it's supposed to please me. Mm-hmm. That's how most evangelicals yeah. think. Yeah, and uh, that's that's a totally upside down mm-hmm. worship is praise offered to God, mm-hmm. and our concern ought not to be how does this please me, but right. does it please God? You know, your comment about. Uh, how so many of us uh, look at God, we look at worship, we look at church as being pleasing to us. Actually, that segues into one of my uh, quotes from John that I want to bring up in our conversation here, Phil, on page 51. This is a chapter on worship as a way of life. John says this, quote, he says, we have many activities and little worship. We are big on ministry and small on adoration. We are disastrously pragmatic. I love that phrase, disastrously pragmatic. I think that's your comments just kind of remind me of of John's assertion here that the church is disastrously pragmatic. What's so disastrous about the church being so pragmatic? Well, pragmatism itself is a bad philosophy Mm -hmm. for ministry. Mm -hmm. And for anyone who's read what John MacArthur has written over the years, you could take almost any one of his books and at some point in the book, he's going to be critical of pragmatism. And in fact, the 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 entirety of his book uh, uh, ashamed of the gospel is an assault on pragmatism mm-hmm. as a as a ministry philosophy uh, but that is the driving force in american evangelicalism pragmatism mm-hmm. uh, and pragmatism is an approach to truth and reality that says if it works if it accomplishes my goal mm-hmm. then it's by definition good that's what pragmatism determines good and bad Mm -hmm. based on whether it works Mm -hmm. or not and uh when it comes to our our ministry in the church and particularly our worship uh that's the wrong question to ask Mm -hmm. as i said earlier it's it's does this please god Mm -hmm. and how do you know if it pleases god Mm -hmm. is it in is it in accord with what he's commanded of us is it what he asks of us uh are we concerned with with 
uh, honoring God or are we concerned with making an environment that's comfortable for us? And pragmatism says, you know, the big thing is to be seeker sensitive. You know, that's the outgrowth of pragmatism in the church, seeker sensitivity. Let's design the service and, and worship of our church so that it draws the biggest possible audience. And in order to do that, you have to design everything so that it's entertaining and pleasing to people who may have zero interest Mm -hmm. in pleasing God. Uh, And that's what church services have become. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and it's, it's the opposite of what scripture teaches us. And in fact, it's an echo of what dragged the nation of Israel down so frequently in the old Testament. Mm -hmm. They wanted to be like the other nations, you know, they imitated the world. They, uh, they, they wanted to do what pleased them uh, rather than what God commanded and as a result, they fell into apostasy again and again mm-hmm. and again. And, and the American church, the American evangelical community, commits the same sin all the time. You know, what puzzles me about the very idea of seeker sensitive is that it's by definition so antithetical to what scripture teaches because scripture clearly teaches us that there is no one who seeks after God. So where does idea of seeker sensitive even come from? I mean, it's it's, it's horrible. So can you expound on that a little bit? Uh, You know, you talk about worship of God and seeker sensitive, uh, the very idea of framing uh, your church structure, your, your, your liturgy or your, your, your order of worship, under the guise of attracting seekers, uh, just that very idea takes the attention off of God and puts it on the person, doesn't it? Right. It, it necessitates a man-centered approach. Mm-hmm. And, and anything that's man-centered is not valid worship. I mean, by definition, right. worship is God-centered, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and you make a great point. There are no true seekers. Scripture clearly says there is none who seeks after mm-hmm. God. No one is truly seeking right. God. Mm-hmm. People are seeking lots of things to fill the holes in their life, mm-hmm. and they may even say that they're seeking God, but there's no one who really seeks the the true God of Scripture. Right. Uh, and again, Scripture's clear about that. And it's always been interesting to me that that's how, actually how the Apostle Paul presents the gospel. In the book mm-hmm. of Romans, mm-hmm. he starts out saying, you know, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation mm-hmm. for everyone who believes. Uh, and so, you know, he's going to talk about the gospel and you know that the word gospel means good news. So you right. think something very uplifting is about to come, mm-hmm. but right after he says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, he says for the wrath of God <laughs> against all humanity. And then he goes off on the sinfulness of all humanity for two and a half chapters, yeah. proving that Jews and Gentiles and even moral Gentiles, religious people, are hopelessly lost and in bondage to sin. And it's not until he gets to Romans chapter 3 that he actually gives us the good part of the good news. It starts with really bad news that no one seeks after God. Right. And it's in that very context that he says, because there's no one who seeks after God. Do you think, just kind of building on your com- comments there about Paul's words there in Romans 1, do you think it's because we take our sin less seriously we, we're so casual about our sin that we're also uh by association casual about worshiping god and how we worship him no question about it mm-hmm. and, and in fact the two ideas sort of 
feed off each right. other. It's mm-hmm. a symbiotic problem. So, so that if you have a casual attitude towards sin, you're going to have a casual attitude about God. Mm-hmm. And if you cultivate a casual attitude about God, it's going to result Bingo. in a casual attitude about sin. So it works both ways. The yeah. two things go hand in hand. Yeah. And once you see who God is, you cannot have a casual attitude right. towards him. Right. That's that's the whole point of those chapters in, in this book that uh, talk about the, the attributes of God and his majesty, once you see that or even catch a glimpse of yeah. it, you realize, uh, I can't I can't approach this so casually. You know, when you talk about catching a glimpse of God and, uh, and, and, and just appreciating who God is in terms of worship, I'm reminded of a scene from Cecil, Bill, Cecil B. DeMille's movie, The Ten Commandments, from the, the late 50s. And in that scene, Charleston, Charlton Heston is portraying Moses as Moses approaches the burning bush. But Charlton Heston, uh, uh, and I remember reading something along these lines. He said he portrayed Moses as as once he's leaving the burning bush and he's re- returning to his family. Moses is all gray. He goes to the burning bush young, but he comes back. His hair is all gray. His beard is all gray. He said, DeMille said that I had to reflect a change in Moses after having encountered God and, 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 and being face to face with God, so to speak, at the burning bush. You cannot... Uh, um, um, confront God or be in front of him in, in, in that sense and come back the same way. Right. In fact, one of the powerful points that John MacArthur makes in this book is that every time in Scripture where someone unexpectedly encounters God, the response is the same every time he falls on his face mm. in fear. Mm. It happens in the Old Testament with, uh, you know, Samson's parents and, and you know, everyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, it happens in the New Testament with Peter. Mm-hmm. Uh, as soon as he realizes who Christ is, he mm-hmm. says, "Depart from me, Lord. I'm a I'm a sinful man." Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's I think what Scripture means when it says, "The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom." Right. You don't even begin to be mature and wise and a spiritual person unless you know that fear. Once you've seen God and understood His holiness and His majesty. All you can think of of yourself is what a deplorable sinner I am. Mm-hmm. And if that doesn't provoke some sense of fear, then you don't really have a, uh, a sound understanding of God. And that's totally lost on the typical evangelical today. They think of God as their buddy, you know, Bingo. like my, yep. he's my invisible friend mm-hmm. and I'm not afraid of him. Mm-hmm. Why would I be afraid of him? Because mm-hmm. there's nothing about him to fear, but... Scripture says, oh, yes, there is. Our God is a consuming fire, and it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And that theme runs all through Scripture. And while it's true that perfect love casts out fear, and ultimately God himself says to us, fear not, uh, the first response when we understand who God is and who we are, if it's not fear, you haven't really begun to understand because the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. You know, you allude to God's holiness there, and that sort of um, takes me to another quote from John's book, uh, Worship the Ultimate Priority. In this chapter titled Worship in Spirit and Truth, John actually quotes Stephen Charnock uh, on this page, and he quotes Charnock as saying, Authentic worship is a function of the heart. It's not about rituals, costumes, atmosphere, special locations, or other external things. So Charnock's already alluding to the pragmatism that we've talked about earlier. But Charnock says this, without the heart, it is no worship. It is no worship. So I want to connect that. You mentioned the word preaching earlier. 
how does pre what what role does preaching play in developing uh, what Charnock is referring to here is authentic worship that comes from the heart. What is the role of preaching in that? If it's proper preaching, then it's exposition of God's Word. Mm -hmm. And exposition of God's Word constantly points us back to God Himself. And so it should provoke worship. The response to the preached Word, if it's properly preached, and if your heart is properly responding, the natural response is worship. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful quote from Charnock. Mm -hmm. By the way, that my editing of that book back in in the early 80s, and I was at the time in my 20s, mm-hmm. that was my first ever response, uh, exposure to uh, any writings by the Puritans. Mm-hmm. Charnock was a Puritan. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who he was, mm-hmm. but John kept quoting him in his sermons on the attributes of God, Stephen Charnock. And mm-hmm. I thought, never heard of this guy, but I got to get his book. And so I looked it up, and his book is actually two volumes, two very thick volumes, right. with very thick prose. Mm-hmm. It's not an easy read, and it's not something you're going to sit down and read uh, on your commute to work uh, for, you know, just a delightful exercise. Yeah. It's it's deep stuff yeah. and and profound. And that was my first ever exposure to the writings of the Puritans, and it's become a, a lifelong love of mine. And uh, Charnock's work in particular, yeah. just profound. And it's been, again— that book by Stephen, or series of books, two two thick volumes mm-hmm. uh, on the attributes of God, has been influential for several generations. I mean, maybe two centuries yeah. of uh, Christians. It's an important work. You know, he wasn't a Puritan, but you're somewhat of an expert on Charles Spurgeon. Right. He how, was, how does Spurgeon view worship? What was, what was he Spurgeon? He was fed and nurtured by the Puritans, yeah. though, and yeah. uh, and so he echoed a lot of a lot of this material. Again, when I edited that book, I had very little knowledge of Spurgeon. I I had heard about Spurgeon as a new Christian. Uh, I'd been a Christian for ten years when I began work on this book, right. uh, and I tried to read some sermons by Spurgeon as a brand new Christian and a seventeen year old, you mm-hmm. know, and. Um, I just it just didn't register with me, and so I put Spurgeon aside and didn't read him again for almost twenty years mm-hmm. until until I edited um, uh, Ashamed of the Gospel, right. which weaves the story of Spurgeon and the downgrade controversy into all of that. Uh, so all my reading of Spurgeon came late, but I've devoured him, and you can tell from you said he's not a Puritan. Some people call him the last Puritan. The last Puritan you know, yeah. uh, it's true though that he's he's at least 150 years after the Puritan yeah. era ended. But his grandfather, who was a pastor, had shelves full of uh, classic Puritan works, and Spurgeon's own favorite work was Pilgrim's Progress. Yep. Uh, and so his preaching Bunyan. and all is full of that sort of uh, biblical instruction that raises your eyes and points your attention to God and provokes worship. Yeah, and I think it's one of the reasons Spurgeon was such a powerful and effective preacher. He understood that that's what true worship is. He right. he lived in an era where I, I think. Uh, churches were just beginning to toy with the idea of uh, drawing people with entertainment and let's amuse people. Uh, and Spurgeon said, no, that you, you may draw a crowd with that, but right. you're not going to get genuine worshipers. Yeah. If your goal is to amuse people, 
what you want to do is uplift God, and right. that will draw true worshipers. And and that was so that was underlying his entire philosophy of ministry. And I think uh, you could say the same thing of John MacArthur. Yeah, I would agree. I would agree completely with you. Matter of fact, I'm thinking as I listen to you, Phil, that part of John's legacy, and yeah, call me bias. But I think part of John's legacy is going to be that he always pointed people back to God. He right. had, he had a he had a an appreciation, a sensitivity for the holiness of God, uh, that God is to be reverenced, uh, that God is to be uh, uh, respected in His house of worship, uh, and not taken as casually as we're taking it now. So I think that's going to be part of John's les- uh, legacy once he steps down from the pulpit. Um, Phil, as we prepare to close this episode of the Truth Matters podcast, what I want to ask you is if you had to answer the question, why is this book, why is worship the ultimate priority still relevant today in 2020? How would you answer that question? It's timeless in the sense that it's talking about issues that are important in any generation. He doesn't deal with current events or, you know, pop culture mm-hmm. or any of that sort of thing. Uh, it's one of the hallmarks of of most of the books John writes, I think, um, they deal with timeless issues. Mm-hmm. And you can, you'll can you be able to read this book 100 years from now, and nothing in it will be outdated. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So uh, so for that reason, I, I think it's a, it's a classic example of how Scripture should be handled in a way that uh, transcends, uh, as John would say, zip codes— and yeah, and time zones. Yeah, yeah you know, yeah. You, it doesn't matter who you are, where you are, uh, what time zone you live in, or or what era you live in. If if this is if this is from God's word, it's an eternal truth. Mm-hmm. It doesn't it doesn't cease to be relevant mm-hmm. when the times change. And uh, John MacArthur understands that, so he preaches like that, and consequently he writes like that. Right. And uh, I, I think people, if the Lord doesn't return before 200 years from now, people 200 years from now are going to be reading that book and saying how timeless it is. Yeah. Just like Charnock. You read Charnock, yep. and even though he wrote hundreds of years ago, you, you go, this is this is powerful stuff that speaks to me in my era. And just like Spurgeon, more than 100 years ago, every sermon he preached still speaks to us today. Yeah, I think, uh, I think uh, not to put a personal plug in here, but on the podcast that I do, I think we probably quote, quote John MacArthur and Charles Spurgeon more than anyone. Yeah. And we quote a bunch of guys. Well, Phil, listen, thanks for being with us on this episode of the Truth Matters podcast. We've been talking to Phil Johnson, executive director at Grace to You on John MacArthur's book, Worship the Ultimate Priority. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Truth Matters podcast.